It's an obscure city about an hour from here. And yet, what happened in this small city impacted lives and made a difference. If you would get on 270 and slide down to 55 and go down 55, about 40 minutes, you'll come to a small city named Herculaneum. It's on the Mississippi River. And in 1798, a Methodist circuit-riding preacher decided that people in the Spanish colony of Missouri needed to hear about Jesus. Now, because it was a Spanish colony, it was against the law to just enter in and to begin to preach Jesus. The religion of Spain was Roman Catholicism, and because of that, they didn't want to to do anything outside of the confines of Roman Catholicism. And yet, coming from Kaskaskia, Illinois, and crossing the Mississippi, John Clark, in 1798, came and stood at the little city of Herculaneum. Now, there's two stories here. One is that he stood at a place called the Big Rock, right on the uh, right off the shore of the Mississippi River and Joachim Creek as they come together and began to preach Jesus. Others say that he did not want to set foot on the Missouri territory and break the law so that he preached from a boat that was moored there and he preached the message of Jesus. Either way, it was important for people to realize that that you're not saved through being a Methodist or being a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or a Catholic, but there's only one way to be saved, and that is through the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, so that we could only be saved one way by trusting Jesus alone. And John Clark was willing to face the hazards of Missouri in 1798 but also to face the challenges to stand up and to preach Jesus. He knew people needed the gospel. Today, people need the gospel. And as we look at Paul in the book of 1 Thessalonians, that we will actually start in the book next week, we see how he has swept into the city of Thessalonica and how... He made a difference for Jesus. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. But then if you want to stick your finger in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 1, we will look at that single verse and then we'll jump over into Acts chapter 17. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, that's Silvanus' Silas, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. But let's get the background now on that church in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse number one. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd. And the rulers of the city, when they heard these things, so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. With that, let's pray. God, speak to us today in the power of your spirit, through the message of your word. May we be convicted and convinced and impassioned with the person of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. In Acts chapter 9, when Saul, who would later become Paul, met Jesus on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute uh, Christians for following the way, for following Jesus, life changed. He had a, a, a a bright light from heaven. They say historically that maybe he fell off of his horse and he cries out and he hears the cry, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he cries out, Lord, who are you that I'm persecuting? Lord, who are you? What's going on? And he says, I am Jesus. With that introduction of Jesus into Paul's life, everything changed. His life, his mindset, his focus, his goals, his future, everything in that moment was transformed. Everything when Paul became, became to, came to know Jesus personally, everything changed. He was on a, on a Jewish religious trek to move up the religious system with great power. And instead, he says, look, I count all of this loss to know Christ. I want to know Christ and I want others to know him. Paul had a transforming experience because of the gospel, the good news. Jesus died. Jesus rose. It's not about me keeping the law. It's not about me following rules. It's all about Jesus. Many of you have grown up hearing that message. Many of you can look back at a heritage of moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas who maybe shared that message of Jesus. I want to challenge all of us today. We understand and recognize we're not the Apostle Paul. But God has called you to make a difference and to show the power of the gospel through your life. It's kind of like this. As believers who have experienced 
the, the power, the transforming power of the gospel in salvation, in our lives through salvation, we now should express that transforming power of the gospel in our lives. We've received the Lord. Now we should show others that there's something different about us. Do you realize that it took the same Jesus on the same cross to pay the penalty for Paul's sins that it did for yours? Did you realize that the same Holy Spirit who lived in Paul lives in you today? This is the Spirit whom raised Jesus from the dead. And now, because we've come to know him, that transforming power of the gospel through salvation in our life, now we should show it. We should have it on display. Sometimes in quiet ways, quiet ways of strength, Sometimes in verbal ways, but all the times in ways that show we have been changed. So I want us to think about Paul and the challenges of his life and how that applies to us in our life. As we look at that, look back with me in Acts chapter 17, because what we see in Acts chapter 17 is is this. Notice verse number three, or verse number two. He, for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The transforming power of the gospel is shared with conviction. It's shared with conviction. I don't know about, about where you are today, but we need to be people who have conviction about us. Now, Paul, as he went in, again, he goes into the synagogue, and as he goes in, he takes three Sabbaths, and he opens up the Old Testament, and he shows everyone there these things. Hey, look, understand this about Jesus. He had to suffer, and he had to rise again from the dead, and saying, Jesus, whom I preach, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. Now, where did Paul get this from the Old Testament? I thought Jesus was just like New Testament stuff, you know? Matthew, we see some genealogies, we see a birth narrative, and and Jesus' life, that's when... Oh, no, no, no. Take your Bibles and look back with me to Isaiah chapter 53. And I want us to think about quite possibly what Paul was, was sharing as he went into the synagogue on this Sabbath day. He shares the, the, the message of Jesus. Now, listen, Isaiah is written 700 years before Jesus. Now, notice Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number five. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. But God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see what's happening? Here's the picture. Jesus had to suffer. God is laying the iniquity, the sinfulness of humanity upon him at the cross. The iniquity of us all is laid on Jesus. Slide down with me to verse number eight. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? He was, out, uh, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. 
Jesus suffered and Jesus died. Paul goes back and he sits down and he reasons with them in the synagogue and says, look, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that's been talked about in Isaiah 53. He suffered, he died. But then he says, don't stop there. Notice with me in Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Now notice these next two, two lines. And he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. Jesus suffered, yes, for our sin. Jesus died. He was cut off from the land of the living, but Jesus rose. Notice it says that he will prolong his days. Jesus is alive. We are not coming together on a Sunday morning in 2021, commemorating somebody who died on the cross for us and looking back at someone who's still dead. Instead, we're celebrating that Jesus is alive. Then notice with me one other thing. Jesus suffered, Jesus died, Jesus rose. Notice with me in verse number 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant, notice what it says, shall justify many. Jesus saves. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus saves. That's the message that Paul shared. It's, it's, it's that simple for us to understand, but it's so amazing that God would send his son Jesus to live a perfect life and die on the cross for us. Now, this brings us to a place of conviction that we as believers in 2021 need to have some convictions. First off, here's our conviction. The Bible is true. The Bible is true. That as Paul would look back to Isaiah 53, he would look back and say, look, look at the prophecy. The prophecy is just one of the marks that show that the Bible is not just historically accurate, but absolutely inspired by God. And Paul would repeat that message to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, where he'd say, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, instruct, correction, instruction in righteousness. The picture is, is God's word is true. John 17.17, 17, as Jesus is praying out his high priestly prayer over his disciples, he says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Let me tell you, in a world in which there's new philosophies and there's new thoughts and there's new ideas and we look at the culture around us, can I tell you, you have an anchor that is tried and true in God's word and we stand on the word. The Bible is true. God's word is true. Secondly, Jesus is the only way of salvation. Paul did not stroll into the synagogue on that day and just say, hey guys, you know, if you just, if you just feel warm and on the inside and, and cozy and cuddly with whatever you believe, it's okay. He didn't come and say, guys, there's many roads up the mountains and, and, and just whatever way is, works for you, then, then that's fine. No. Remember Peter and John in Acts chapter four, they would say, neither is there salvation in any other. 
For there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved in Acts 4.12, except the name of Jesus. Jesus himself would say in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way of salvation. People can be sincere in their belief, but listen, they can be sincerely wrong. You say, buddy, that's a, that's a, that's a hard claim. Yeah, it is. It's a hard claim in our world today that looks at us as if we are closed-minded and bigoted. Do you remember that part in the movie Aladdin when Aladdin and Jasmine get on the carpet and they sing, a whole new world, you know, I mean, uh, can I tell you today, we are in a whole new world when it comes to our culture. We are in a whole new world when it comes to the, the impact in which the, the culture seeks to stick us in their mold. But we do not bow and we do not bend to the culture and we do not bend or bow to the politicians of our day. We say we stand on Christ alone. We stand on his word. Jesus is the only way. Thirdly, Jesus is available for all. Notice what happens back in Acts chapter 17. It tells us that as he goes and he reasons that some of them believed. Who were the them? The them were the Jews that were in the synagogue. The them were were those that were right exactly where they would have been on the Sabbath day. Some of them were persuaded, it says in verse number four. But then it goes on to say, and that there were some Greeks some Gentiles, and some leading women. The picture is, is Jesus just didn't come for the Jews. He came for the Gentiles. He didn't come just for uh, those that, that would be under the Old Testament uh, covenant and promises that they received through Abraham. I, no, he came for everyone. And can I tell you today, it doesn't make any difference, the color of one's skin, the amount in one's checkbook, the history or heritage that one may have, salvation is available to all. Aren't you thankful that John 3.16 says, God so loved the world? The world. And we're part of that world. And so are the people of Afghanistan, and so are the people of Haiti. And so we're praying, Lord, through the difficulty and even through the tragedy, Lord, would you draw them to Jesus? The transforming power of the gospel is shared with conviction. Paul had a conviction. But secondly, we see this, that this this transforming power of, of the gospel is demonstrated through persistence. Do, do you remember what just happened in Acts chapter 16? Paul didn't know where to go in Acts 16. He didn't know what God wanted him to do. He was on a missionary journey, and it's like, okay, I'm going to try to push into Asia. No, we can't push into Asia. And the Bible says in Acts 16 that he saw a vision of a man from Macedonia say, come over here. And so he sees the vision, and they go into the city of Philippi, and there they meet the woman Lydia, and she uh, comes to know Jesus as her Savior. And then they, they see this servant girl who is uh, behind them, and, and she is a fortune teller, and they cast the demon out of her. And remember, his, we just heard this on August the 1st with Taylor D. Roberto. Uh, then they arrest Paul and Silas for taking someone's uh, 
financial, fi- finances away by this little girl who was telling fortunes. They cut off their, uh, their financial flow, and so they had them beaten. And it says that they had stripes on their back. This doesn't mean that they were just like given little spankings, you know. I mean, this was a severe beating by the Romans. And then they were put in stocks. And then what happened? It tells us then Paul went from Philippi down from to Amphipolis and Apollonia and then came to Thessalonica. You know, there's a persistence in Paul's life that is just amazing. Now, let me tell you what Buddy would have done. Buddy gets beaten, stripes, locked in stocks. He gets out the next day. He calls the personnel committee and says, guys, I think it's time for another sabbatical. All right, that's, that's Buddy. That's not Paul. Notice, notice the heart of Paul through all of this. There is this persistence about him. There's persistence in prayer and worship. Notice in Acts chapter 16 and verse number 25. It tells us that at midnight, after being beaten and put in the stocks, what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing. There's this call to prayer. There's this focus on God. There's this persistence in their life. They are not feeling sorry for themselves. They are, are not just licking their wounds. Instead, the transforming power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit churning up in them, brings them to a point where they're praying and they're worshiping. Then notice what happens in Acts chapter 16 and verse number 40. They're released from prison and they go to the house of Lydia. And then notice what it says in Acts chapter 16 and verse number 40. That when they got there, they, Paul and Silas, encouraged them. Now, this is not backwards. There's not just persistent prayer and worship, but there is persistent encouragement to believers. Paul gets out of prison and what does he do? He goes to Lydia's house and instead of all of them coming and saying, oh, Paul, man, can we make you a casserole? Oh, Paul, can we put some band-aids on you? Oh, Paul. No, it tells us that Paul encouraged them. Do you see how amazing this is? Do you see the heartbeat and the transformation that Paul had experienced in his life? The focus that was set on Jesus, the heart to encourage others, no matter the circumstances around you. And may I just say, let's just pause for a moment. Julian and I were at Billy Graham's The Cove and Steve Brown, as he was speaking, he said, as you look around, probably seven plus out of 10 people that are in your presence at any one moment are carrying a heavy burden about something. Seven out of 10. Sometimes when we're carrying that burden, we think, oh man, I wish somebody would encourage me. I wish somebody would come to my aid. I wish somebody would come meet my needs. Do you know what Paul did? Amid the time of trouble and trial and tribulation and open stripes on his back, he was an encourager. So I want to challenge you. The best, maybe the best aspect of your mental and spiritual life may be amid the storm that you are in right now today to reach out and try to encourage others. They prayed and worshiped. They encouraged. And then thirdly, we see that they shared the gospel with unbelievers. They were sharing. 
Acts chapter 16 and verse number 31. They tell the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts chapter 17, verse number 2, they took the scriptures and they reasoned with them. And in verse number 3, how about how Jesus had to suffer and die and how he would rise again from the dead. Sharing Christ with unbelievers was important in their life. Back in 2002 in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, there was a mine that caved in and there were nine miners that were stuck 240 feet below the ground in a little uh, cavern-like area that was only four feet tall. Once they realized, they sent down a, uh, a single line with a microphone on it to find out if they were alive. And when they found out they were alive, they went to work. 77 hours they worked. And at hour 77, they finally brought number one up, then number two, three, all the way to number nine. Governor Mark Schweiker, as he said, we are nine for nine. We've saved them all. He said it was like this. The governor described it as the excitement or the action of when his own children were brought into the world. Now, there were some similarities to that, I'm sure, just seeing that child come out. But if you're in the delivery room and, you know, you have like a 50-year-old minor uh, that's born, that is going to be a little weird, okay? So, so you, you can't take that illustration too far. But the truth of the matter is, he was just amazed. Can I tell you, when someone comes to know Jesus, it is not just someone who's 240 feet away. And the rescue team is not one that's just at work for 77 hours. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And we find the very first promise of God showing his plan of salvation right after the first sin in Genesis chapter 3. When God speaks to the serpent who beguiled Eve and says to the serpent, there's going to be enmity between between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And her seed is going to crush your head in Genesis chapter 3. The message of Jesus is a rescue story for all of us who are lost in sin. That's the transforming power of the gospel. But we have to be persistent in sharing it. Thirdly, we see this. The transforming power of the gospel is focused on Jesus. Focuses on Jesus. We're, we're looking to Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me. Not everybody believed. You remember that. Not everybody believed. When, when Paul shared, there were some, some Jews, there were some Greeks, some of the leading women, but then there were those who began to cause trouble. And as they cause trouble, they start a riot and they go to Jason, who had probably come to know Jesus and was, was harboring and, and holding on to Paul and protecting him. And, and they can't find Paul and Silas, so they drag these guys out and, and they go to the political leaders and notice what they say because it is so interesting to me. Notice in verse number seven, Jason has harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, 
Jesus. Now listen, Paul had shared that Jesus suffered. Jesus died. Jesus rose. But here we get another picture of Paul's message. They were sharing that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. In the 150s AD, there was a bishop in the area of Smyrna whose name is Polycarp. He was told that if he did not at least show his humility and worship the emperor that he would die. They, they told him and threatened him that he needed to take a little pinch of incense and put it on the altar and say these two words, Kaisar Kurios, Caesar is Lord. Polycarp, two words will save your life. Kaisar Kurios, Caesar is Lord. And he says this, as they're leading him to burn him at the stake, he says, 80 and six years have I served him and he has never failed me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When Paul and Silas were preaching the message that Jesus is king, remember emperor worship at this time was beginning right out of the Roman Empire. They're preaching Jesus is king. What well, can I tell you? He is. He is. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 37, Pilate had put over Jesus' cross. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. I think he did it for two reasons. One off, I think he did it to ridicule Jesus. But second off, I think he did it to tick off the Jews. So Pilate puts up this sign. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. But can I tell you in Revelation chapter 19, verse number 11, it tells us that there is one who is riding a white horse and he is called faithful and true. And his eyes are like flashes of lightning. And on his head are many crowns. And he has a robe that is dipped in blood. And out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And it tells us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 15, that written on his name, or written on his, on his robe and on his thigh, is the name King of kings and Lord of lords. Can I tell you, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Paul emphasized, Jesus is king. But as we look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, we see this. Not only is Jesus king, but the book of 1 Thessalonians is interesting in this regard. The book of 1 Thessalonians is the only book in the Bible that mentions the second coming of Jesus in every chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 23. Every chapter mentions the return of Jesus. The most famous of those passages, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, tells us that the Lord himself 
will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus is king and Jesus is coming. And I don't know where you are today. I was preached mainly to believers today to say, look, show the power of the gospel through you. But if you've never experienced the transforming power of Jesus, that you know that you've been forgiven, that you know that you are going to heaven, that you know that you've received eternal life, you know that the Holy Spirit lives in you. If you've never received that, then can I tell you, you might be prepared for a lot of things, but you're not prepared for his coming. Those of us who are believers, we may have trusted Jesus, but somewhere along the line, we may have gotten off course. Distraction, busyness, temptation, allurement of the world, just has kind of brought us to that place where we've lost our focus and we've lost our passion. Can I tell you, Jesus is king. Jesus is coming. If you don't know Jesus today, we'd love to talk with you about that. If you know Jesus Maybe today's the day the Lord says, you need to relight. You need to rekindle that flame that once burned for him.